0: Hello and welcome to this 20th episode of the Unorthodoxy podcast. I am Duncan Rayburn and I'm incredibly glad that you're joining me for this episode. Before I jump into what I want to talk about today, I just want to give you uh, some good news. Well, it's really exciting news for me. I've been working for a few years on a book and it's finally out. The book is called Seeing Things As They Are, G.K. Chesterton and the Drama of Meaning. Uh, it's published by cascade and it's just been an incredible experience to to work on this stuff. My whole aim in the book in, in writing the book was to look at at the world through the eyes of this incredibly interesting, unique guy who I've quoted quite a few times on this podcast already. His name is G. K. Chesterton, as you already know, and he's just got such a fresh way of of looking at the world and and so in looking at his perspectives on things i want to invite you and me, in fact, to into a whole new way of seeing things. Uh, the book is about perception. It's about hermeneutics, this the art of interpreting uh, the world and, and the interpretive experience. It's about theology and faith, and it's got a bit of mysticism in it and a bit of metaphysics, and it's got a few jokes in it. I even write about the humor of Chesterton and how this helps us to see things in, in fresh perspective. And all sorts of things that I I feel are very key to to engaging with um, theology, but but also just engaging with the way that we understand the world. It was an absolute thrill to write. Uh, fairly hard work, as I'm sure some of you will know and some of you can imagine. But I'm I'm really glad it's out there because it's it's the book that I wanted to to. It, if I couldn't have asked for a better way to to write a first book, a better experience to write a first book uh, for the world and. And hopefully a few of you out there will find it interesting. If anything of what I've just said appeals to you, then maybe uh, you can take a look at it. it's It's pretty much available anywhere that good books are sold, um, mostly online. I think it's you know the easiest way to make sure you can find it. I'd also really love to hear your thoughts on on it if you find the time to to read it read it and give me some feedback. Uh, you can look up my email or, or just you know send me a tweet or something so yeah that's that's really exciting news. I will probably at at a later later stage actually talk a little bit more directly about the book but um for now, I want to start something off that I have been wanting to do for a while i i really i'm crazy about this this theory called mimetic theory it's it's basically this uh, this kind of wacky theory of everything it it's it's all about the full human experience right from ancient times to the present its anthropology its philosophy its history its literature its film its culture it's, uh, it's just so much and and it's it was developed by this amazing thinker named René Girard who who sadly passed away last year but Girard left this incredible legacy and people are writing about his work i've i've published a few things on Girard's work uh, just in in journal articles and i think that mimetic theory has tremendous implications for how we live life it also has significant implications for theology i think helping us especially those of us who've been uh, kind of i think disenfranchised by by more conservative theologies i think that this opens a way to to engage with theology that is fresh and and loving and insightful. So what I want to do is I want to look at the whole theory, but I want to do this in bits. Um, so in this episode of the Unorthodoxy podcast, I want to look at part one, the question of why we want what we want. I'm not sure you've ever asked this question, but Why do you want what you want? Or why do you desire what you desire? It's it may not seem like a very obvious question, but it's the question of where does desire come from? Desire is is so much a part of our human experience. It's it's a part of how we function in the world. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but why do we want what we want? Where does this desire come from? I think that desire is an amazing way to understand the nature of the self we exist in and through what we desire it's almost that desire is this thing that unifies us uh, jm ugolion who i've quoted before in his book the genesis of desire says that desire gives rise to the self and by its movement animates it so it's almost as if the self is this this kind of it's always in a kind of flux and desire gives, gives the self structure and order and it animates the self. This is something that Michael Kawan echoes in his book Understanding Gerard. He says that the self is an unstable, constantly changing, evanescent structure brought into existence by desire. We we are kind of deconstructed before we are constructed by desire. Deconstruction is is kind of the the foundation of the self. There is, the earth is formless and void before God says, "Let there be light." There is always this kind of chaos that needs to be given a direction. So this is why the the philosopher Hegel says that desire is humanizing. It's the thing that makes us human. It it's in fact the way that we understand what it means. To be human, one way to look at desire is to realize that desire and need are not exactly the same thing, obviously they overlap in certain ways. but I would say it's quite helpful to to make some kind of a distinction. One way to do it is to to point out that you know we have these biological needs, like I need food to be able to survive um i i I have a need for water, for instance, but I have a desire to drink some tea. The the need is almost uh, the foundation, and desire is this thing that, that builds on it and transcends the need. Simone Weil has a beautiful way of articulating the distinction between needs and desires. She says that needs are finite. So once I've had something to drink, I I'm fine. I don't need to keep on going. But desire is this thing that that makes us want to keep on going. So once I've had a coffee, it doesn't mean I'll never want coffee again. In fact, the opposite is true. I seem to always be wanting more coffee at, at, I mean, with intervals, obviously. So with this in mind, we we can see desire is something that unifies what is largely a fractured sense of being. I, I think one of the greatest problems in the world today in terms of people losing direction and we will talk about m- more of that later in a later episode, one of the greatest problems is that we feel so pulled in so many different directions. Our desires are so scattered that our sense of self is, is in a way injured. Um, and, and as we get into mimetic theory, you'll, you'll get a better sense of why that, in fact, happens. Often the trouble is that we can't seem to help what we want. I think this is where the question of why we want what we want becomes really pertinent. We don't always seem to have control over what we want. We seem to want things that are sometimes bad for us. Why is that? Uh, it's such a, uh, an odd thing to do. Another way of putting this is to say that we, we can even want what we don't want. Uh, this is to say that we, we can even have desires that are in conflict with each other, two totally different desires in a way at the same time. And I'm sure you've, you've listened to people where they're talking and, and you realize that they, there's conflict, in, internal conflict, and, and they're not sure how to resolve that. And I think part of the problem with resolving those sorts of conflicts is, uh, hinges on a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is something that uh, Gerard calls the romantic lie. This is uh, stuff I get from his book Deceit and Desire. And the novel it's an incredible, mind blowing book. Actually, every book of Gerard's that I've read is is just even when he recaps stuff that you're familiar with, it's just it's always just so illuminating. So Gerard comes up with this notion of the romantic lie. The romantic lie is the lie. It's the belief that all desire is spontaneous that desire is generated out of ourselves that it actually that we almost have this little sort of little machine in us that that manufactures the desire and then then we act according to that desire so there's a, a kind of self-generated desire and gerard says that this is a this is a silly way in a way of conceiving of desire desire cannot be entirely spontaneous because Seriously, if you look at the question, is there anything you've ever wanted that someone else hasn't wanted first? All of our desires seem to come from outside of us. And this is why Gerard posits this notion of novelistic truth. Novelistic truth is the antithesis of the romantic lie. Novelistic truth is the truth that all desire is mimetic desire. All desire is copied or imitated or borrowed or modeled or mediated. There is always a kind of locus outside ourselves, a place outside of ourselves that generates desire in a way for us. We are copying that desire from the other, from another person. Um, Shakespeare has a great way of saying this. He says that desire is always desire by another's eye. In a way, we cannot look at the world except through the perspectives and visions and, and ways of seeing of other people. We're always desiring through others. So we don't just imitate the appearance of people. We actually imitate their substance, their desires. This is quite a fresh way of looking at things, because when you look at, say, a writer like uh, like Aristotle, Aristotle believed that we are wonderfully gifted in in the realm of I- imitation. We can imitate others very easily. And Aristotle, when he thinks of this, he thinks more of skill or the ability of a, a painter to imitate the form of a person that he is painting, or pretty sure painting was not the, the uh, example used by aristotle but anyway the the idea of imitation being a surface concern is very much prevalent in aristotle and a lot of in a lot of thinkers throughout history but gerard is saying something a little bit different he says that we are actually imitating the the inner world of people the substance of the person that we're imitating this is something that i i found written in in the book evolution and conversion It's a book by Gerard Antonello and Rocker. They they've got uh, a few ideas around mimetic theory in the introduction, and this is one of them. They say that the fascination of Gerard's theory, among other things, stems from its immense explanatory power based on a very parsimonious—that means stingy, penny pinching—genetic principle, namely imitation, in particular reciprocal imitation of desire among human beings. That's quite a verbose statement. But what I love about it is it points out something very, very true. Girard's theory is very simple. The, the fact that desire is borrowed, that's kind of the, the the nexus or the kind of pivot around which all of this theory hinges. And it's so simple, but when you take it and apply it to the way that you see the world to 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 literature, to art, to to culture, to sports events, all sorts of things, to theology, you start to realize its immense explanatory power. Something very small, a little seed planted in a field, can transform the entire field. And that's the thing that mimetic theory does for me. One way to understand uh, the nature of this mimetic desire is through the terminology that that mimetic desire always has a triangular structure. There is always a subject, that's the desiring subject, the person who wants. There is always the model, that's the person that the subject is copying the desire of. And then there is the object of desire. So the subject copies the model's desire for an object, and that that forms the triangle. I'm not sure if you can see it in your head. So imagine at the top of an isosceles triangle, there's the object, then on the one side is the subject, and on the other side is the model. That's the triangular structure of desire. And a great story that explains us, or puts us in full view, I think, is the story of Eve and the serpent and the fruit in the book of of Genesis, right early on in, in Genesis 3. So Eve, initially, who is the symbol of humanity in this case, or the symbol of womanhood, she has no interest in the fruit. She doesn't care for it. She says to the serpent when he asks her, No, I don't want to eat the fruit. Uh, we're, we were told not to. But the serpent says to her, But, but look at it. It's very nice fruit. It quite, looks quite tasty. And Eve thinks, Well, um, you seem to be right over there, so maybe I should give it a try. So Eve's desire initially copied from God and Adam as kind of representatives in the story. She copies their desires and then has her desires changed, shifted when she copies the serpent's desire for her to eat the fruit. Another story that might well, it's not really a story, but it's just a, a metaphor that might help to explain this, is to to replace the subject, Eve, with a human being the model with a zombie who's about to bite that human being, and the object of desire, brain. So initially, human beings in zombie stories have no interest in eating brains because it's gross. Uh, but what they do is they, well, they get bitten by a zombie, and well, through, depending on your zombie mythology, they then get transformed into zombies. So the zombie virus, or the curse, depending on your zombie mythology, that is the symbol for mimetic desire. The zombie spreads the desire or the virus to the subject and then the subject suddenly becomes a zombie and then wants brains just like the other zombie. It's not a flawless analogy, but it can help. And I will come back to it because I've got an interesting film that I want to mention as an example of this. What um, Gerard notices though is that We have lots of really small desires, you know, desires to have coffee with friends or desires to, I don't know, buy a car, depending. Desires to go to church or not to go to church or whatever it is. He says that our deepest desire is not for things or objects, but to be. J.M. Ogulian, he says that this is the desire to exist in greater measure. This is what Gerard refers to as metaphysical desire. All other sub-desires are merely variations on this one desire to rule them all, to misquote the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Gerard writes, the desire according to the other is always a desire to be the other. There is only one single metaphysical desire, but the particular desires which concretize this primordial desire vary ad infinitum. I do want to point out at this at this point that Gerard may be overstating his case a little. I I have this feeling that he might be. He says that all desires are metaphysical desires. I I prefer Uguccione's interpretation. I think that U, Ugoulian, uh softens it. He says that the most extreme form of desire is metaphysical desire. So it's not that all little sub desires are variations on metaphysical desire, but that. Those are smaller kinds of desires, and metaphysical desire would be kind of further along the continuum. It's not a hierarchy, but a continuum in Guglielmo's work. Oh, sorry, my phone just went. I should probably put it on silent. Anyway, so um, to carry on, this is, in a way, this is the dilemma of our desiring. We we are always borrowing desires from from others. If you want to test this, and this is kind of fun to see in, in everyday life, as uh, let's say you're at a restaurant with a friend you're about to order something and you go oh you know what i'd really like uh, i don't know what it is i'd like okay. lamb stew for some reason and your friend goes oh my goodness that you know that looks really good and then they order the same thing that you just did that would be an example of mimetic desire it's a very simple thing uh so and there will be more examples as we go along but but it's amazing that your friend will somehow miraculously want the same thing that you do. And it's because desire is not spontaneous. Now, the reason why you ordered lamb stew in the first place, well, that's something that we can can ask questions about later. But even that desire would have come out of a context and a particular way that you were formed and relate to desire and to the desire of others. So often... We we see this in, at play in the world, but it might be worth noticing that at its most extreme, our desire is not just to want what others have, but to be who they are. This can give rise to conflict. That's something I'm going to deal with more directly in the next episode. So a key question to ask when we have this idea in mind is how does your experience reveal the desire of the other? How Are you in some way, in different ways, imitating the desires of others? I think this this answers a lot of riddles that have been put forward to us by psychoanalysis. I think psychoanalysis and mimetic theory are incredibly powerful companions and can be um, I think helpful for for us to understand our lives and how the way and just how we how we function around others. How are you living your life according to the desire of others? How does this affect you? I think it's a really good way to look at it. So um, I'm not going to answer that question, but what I do want to do is give you a a little bit of a taste of a a scenario that is sketched by a very unique zombie movie, because I think this explains desires transmission really well, the contagion of desire in a very unique way. The zombie movie in question is called Pontypool, and it's a very small kind of indie film, and it's got some good points and some, you know, negatives, very low budget. And I think because it's low budget, it relies on on its being very clever to really work. But in this movie, it proposes the idea that the zombie contagion is actually spread via language. Now, this gives you quite an interesting picture already, because if desire is always borrowed, it does raise the question of what what role language actually plays in the spreading of desire. So in Pontypool, what is assumed is that the virus functions in the following way. First, there is a word that is spoken. Then, second, its meaning is understood by the person who is being spoken to. Third, its meaning, and thus the virus that is somehow contained in the meaning, takes hold of the person. You can see something in this of Richard Dawkins's idea of of the meme and mimetic theory, uh, which is not exactly the same as mimetic mimetic theory, but it does, uh, I think, share some commonalities in that it it tries to be scientific in some sense. Um, And then fourth uh, in, in Pontypool, there is a cure. So I'm going to be spoiling a little bit of the film but hopefully uh, when you see it, you'll realize that this doesn't spoil exactly how it plays out. But the cure is to un-understand. That's not a word. I've just made that up. Uh, It's to not understand. It's to somehow undo meaning and understanding. Now, from a mimetic theory perspective, I think we, we need to get beyond language. I think that's part of the point of why I'm mentioning this. We language certainly serves a function but what it does is it functions predominantly at the level of the conscious the conscious like what we're aware of and i think memetic theory addresses something far deeper in us something that is unconscious so people adopt the meaning unawares actually the meaning is somehow contained or actually let me put it this way i think i've just confused the issue i think it's not It's not that the meaning is the thing that carries the virus in the end. It's the fact that there is something innate, something inward in in us that drives even our desire for meaning. So to cure the mimetic desire means to actually understand that center, that unconscious process that is actually driving us to desire the desire of others. So it's not merely an understanding that we are borrowing desires. It's not merely in, in like the fact that we're conscious of specific words that we latch onto desires. We're actually affected by the desire, desires of others at a visceral, embodied level. We're affected unconsciously. It's the very nature of the input that shapes our consciousness of the world. So this is what we're going to be looking at as we move on into into the next couple of episodes of this podcast we want to look at well i want to look at and i hope you do too i want to look at the way that mimetic theory helps us to examine relationships between people and things because human beings are relational beings we are contextually formed we there's always a a kind of tension between nurture and nature that you're all very aware of but this is Profoundly illuminating when it comes to self-examination and and understanding why we make certain decisions and why we go against certain other decisions, Uh, and and that's what I want to look at a little bit more. I've I've just wanted to give you a very brief sketch. Desire is mimetic. A lot of desire, the ultimate desire of that is metaphysical. That there is a triangular structure to desire. There is a subject. There's a model and there's an object, and that object of desire is desired only because the subject is copying the, the model or the mediator, and that this is in fact the truth of our desiring. This, this thing that unifies our, our fractured sense of self is in fact the fact that we desire always within the context of others. That is it for now. Thank you so much uh, again for listening. I really appreciate all of you out there who listen to this because it's it's a great thing for me to be able to share these ideas with you. I'd love to hear your feedback. You're very welcome to post a, a comment on the Unorthodoxy podcast Facebook page. If you like, you can send me a tweet at Duncan Rayburn, Rayburn, R-E-Y-B-U-R-N. Um, just get in touch. It would be great to hear some of your feedback. Your questions would also be welcome. I actually have have in mind the idea to to do a question-answers-unorthodoxy podcast once I'm done with memetic theory. So I'd love to hear your questions. You can ask me impossible ones. That would be great uh, because I'm also okay with not knowing stuff. So thanks again. Uh, take care of yourself. Cheers.